Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. So a change takes place now in the second chapter of Mark. Jesus is now going to have some conflict and controversy. This is to be expected. Mary was told when she brought her eight-day-old son to the temple... And dedicated him. There was Simon, Simeon there, who had waited for the consolation of Israel and had been revealed to him that he would live to see the Messiah. And he told Mary, verse 34 of Luke 2, he has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. That's the NLT translation of that verse. So Mary had it in her heart that her son was going to be opposed. She had no idea in what way and how it would all terminate. But the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and faced great opposition. In fact, as in John 15, he was hated without a cause. If there, any, if there wasn't any person on the face of the earth that deserved to be loved... By everyone, without exception, it was Jesus Christ, but just the opposite occurred. And he encountered opposition and conflict with, of all people, the Jewish leadership. So we want to look at this second chapter of Mark, verses 1 to 12. Follow along as I read this section. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, the text actually, it's the idea they dug a hole in the roof. And I'll explain why they had to do that in a minute. They made a hole, dug a hole through the roof, and they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never saw anything like this. So the beginning of conflict and controversy in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice in verses 1 and 2, Jesus returned to Capernaum. Remember, he was going on a preaching tour in chapter 1. I have, I'm going to go to many more towns. The apostles wanted him to stay there because there were so many people looking for him. But Jesus said, in response, they don't control him. They don't manipulate him. They don't tell Jesus what to do. He follows the will of God. And he had many more towns to minister at. So now he's back. He's done his tour. We don't know how long it lasted. We're not given any of those details by Mark. But now he's back in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a very privileged town in Galilee. It saw more of Jesus' ministry than any other place in Israel. Think of that. They had the privilege of Jesus ministering there many times, over and over again. So he's back in town, and it says that he's at home. He's at a house. This is probably, he didn't have a house, so it's not his house. He's probably in Peter's home again, where he was, where we last saw him. He's back in Peter's house. And the town gets word that Jesus has returned. He's back in Capernaum. So the crowds, now more than ever, they're following him. Now the word crowd, or many, it says in our English version, but it's a word for crowd. 38 times Mark uses this. This is what accompanied the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Crowds, hundreds, and on some occasions there were thousands. He fed 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, with a boy's lunch that consisted of a few pieces of bread and fish. But here there's many. Now they've all come to this house where Jesus is. Now, a house back in those days consisted of either one, two, or three, four, or four rooms. They weren't that big, and the largest one that's been excavated to date was about 18 feet in one direction, so a large living room, perhaps. So you take a house like that, and there's a courtyard in the middle, and about 50 people could stand up shoulder to shoulder in one of these rooms. That's about the capacity. This house is full. The doorway is jammed with people. So this is a situation. They filled the house, and what is Jesus doing? He's preaching to them. He's bringing them the Word of God, because this is what men and women need. They need the Word of God. They need to hear what God has to say. Now, when you think of the crowds that followed Jesus, just remember, at the end of his ministry, 
when he was all done after three and a half years, how many people were gathered in Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit? This was the church that had been saved and gathered at the end of Jesus' ministry. 120. 120 people. That's all. At least that were in the Jerusalem area. So this is the fruits of Jesus' ministry. 150 people gathered in Jerusalem. This is Acts 1.15 if you want the text where that's found. I just find that interesting. When he had thousands of people following him, listening to him teach. And notice they're very impressed by this healing that occurs. They're amazed. They glorify God. Doesn't say they believed. Doesn't say they were converted. 120 souls composed the first church there in Jerusalem. Okay, notice secondly, verses 3 to 5. Now it gets interesting. This house is packed. And here comes four men carrying a paralytic. A man who had paralysis and could not walk. He spent whatever years that he had this condition on a mat. That was a poor man's bed back in the first century. Something that he could actually roll up. Maybe like a thermorest mattress or something of that sort. Something thin, lightweight, can be rolled up. And this was his bed. This is what he slept on. This is what they carried him on. Well, there's no way they're going to get this man into that house. The doorway is packed with people. People are standing shoulder to shoulder. But one of the nice things about the first century housing uh, in Palestine is they had an an outdoor kind of a patio up on top of the roof. And there was a staircase, a stone staircase on the outside of these homes, and you could get up there. uh, The roof consisted of uh, some large beams that were supported by the exterior walls, and then they put sticks and so on across those beams, and they covered it with thatch and mud. And this was the roof, but it was strong enough he could walk on it. Remember when Peter saw his vision in Acts 10? Where was he? Says he was up on the roof. So that was if you want some fresh air, you got out of the house, you go up there, probably their laundry was dried up there, you could eat outdoors up there when it was hot. Just imagine, it's what things, very few things change with man. We all kind of need the same thing, regardless of when and where we lived. So this is, this was the rooftop. So they take this guy up there. And they have to dismantle the roof and dig a hole through it. So imagine all the debris that's falling down onto the people that are below. You stop and think about it. It must have been kind of funny when all of a sudden all this stuff is falling through the roof. And they create an opening big enough to lower this man's bed. And they brought him right down. And apparently the people cleared and allowed him this space very near the Lord Jesus Christ. And the text says that when Jesus saw their faith, not only of the four friends, but I believe 
the paralytic as well. He had to agree to this. So he must have had confidence as well in Jesus of Nazareth. So it would seem that they were confident that Jesus would heal him. Not only that Jesus was able to heal him, but that he would be willing to heal him. Because it would be kind of embarrassing to go to all that trouble and then Jesus turns him down. It just wouldn't make any sense that he wouldn't do something for this man. But I I like the fact that it says that Jesus saw their faith. Because even though they encountered a great obstacle that was in the way, this, this is a characteristic of true faith, that when it meets resistance or an obstacle or some discouragement, that faith will find its way around that thing. It will persevere. It will get over that thing that is... Clearly in the way. Faith is a grace that is victorious. We're told that. This is the faith that overcomes the world. The faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they found another way. It's bold. It's ingenious. It was desperate. And they're determined. This is all an evidence of the faith that they had. And they persevered through these discouragements. And here's another case. We brought this out before where not a word is said. There's not a prayer. Nobody's asking Jesus to do anything. It's simply they lure this man who has a great need right in front of him. And without saying a word, Jesus knows what they're asking for. This this was a plea without words, a plea for his help. But notice what Jesus says to him, verse 5. He said to the paralytic, "My, my son, and what is it? Your sins are forgiven. Not that you're healed. He doesn't go there yet. He starts with the bigger problem. There's something more important than your physical healing. Your sins need to be forgiven. Now the word here for forgiven, the basic meaning of the word is to be released. Your sins have been released. But we know what that means in a biblical context. It means, first of all, that the person's guilt has been canceled. The charges have been dropped. And therefore, you're not liable to the consequences. You're not liable to punishment. This is is biblical forgiveness. This is what is being told to the man. His guilt has been canceled. And he has been released from all liability. The penalty, the consequences of sin, for the wages of sin, is death. So no better news could be told to him at this point. This is a beautiful thing that is said to him. 
here's something to think about. That the man was not entirely well, he wasn't entirely healed until his sin was forgiven. Because Jesus came to treat the whole man, the whole person. And we not only need physical healing, physical restoration, physical health, but we need God's forgiveness. We need spiritual health. You know, I'm just I'm reminded of why the famous preacher of London, England, by the name of Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was an associate physician to the royal family in the 1920s, a brilliant doctor, why he left medicine and became a preacher. And he tells in Ian Murray's biography why he did that. He, when he saw people and the problems that they had, he realized there was so much more to their need, and the greater need was the spiritual in people's lives. And he left medicine in order to address the greater and deeper need, man's relationship to God, forgiveness of sins, and so on. Billy Graham was told many years ago by a famous psychiatrist in London that 80 or 90 percent of the people that were in mental institutions in Great Britain would go home tomorrow if they could find forgiveness. That was the main problem, was guilt. They were haunted by guilt that drove them crazy, drove them into institutions. This is man's greater need. Always has been man's great need is forgiveness. So the Lord Jesus came to deal with that as well. It's interesting how you find this in the Bible. The two together, we sang 10,000 Reasons just a moment ago. That's based on Psalm 104. And in Psalm 104 and verse 5, it says of God, we bless God, and then he names the reasons why we bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. Notice that. The two are together, but being forgiven of our iniquity comes first. Then, he says, who heals us of all our diseases. Comment made on On that last part, yes, he heals us of all our diseases, but the last one. The one that finally takes our life if we die that way. And then Peter says, in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 24, speaking of the death of Christ, that Christ bore our sins, that we might die to sin. So, the death of Jesus is... One of its purposes was to liberate his people from the practice of sin in their life, that we might die to sin. This is one of the things that Paul develops in Romans chapter 6, that we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. And this is why Christ died. He bore our sins that we might die to sin. And then Peter says, same verse, By his wounds, we are healed. 
Now, there's many churches that like to take that healing there, and this comes from Isaiah 53 and verse 5. And they say that refers to your physical healing, that there's physical healing in the cross. I don't completely disagree with that. There is, in a sense, that. But the immediate healing he's talking about in this context is healing from the problem of sin, the problem of practicing sin in our life. This is where our first healing needs to occur before physical healing. When Jesus made this statement to this man, my son, your sins are forgiven, he he wasn't simply saying what was said to King David by Nathan the prophet, who told David, the Lord has pardoned you, you're not going to die for Adultery and murder. That, that's, that's not, Jesus is not simply declaring to the man that God has forgiven you. No. Jesus is extending forgiveness to this man. This is, this is the difference. This is what upset the scribes. Well, who, who can forgive sins but God alone? They understood, that, they understood Jesus perfectly, that he was forgiving the man. Big difference between saying, yeah, God has forgiven you versus I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. I am forgiving you. That's what Jesus is saying here. And that brings me to point number three in verses 6 to 12, the whole latter half of this passage. This is what gets Jesus in hot water. This this is what ignites the controversy. His claim to forgive sin. So the scribes, notice they're they're in the house. What are they doing there? These men were extremely jealous of Jesus' fame and popularity. They were eaten up with jealousy. So no doubt they were there to find fault. They were there as critics, just watching everything he was doing in order to pounce on him if Jesus said something wrong or did something they didn't like. So the scribes are there, and uh, they're listening to this And they they don't say it out loud, by the way. They don't accuse Jesus out loud of blaspheming. They're thinking this and probably whispering, what's this man saying? The Lord Jesus, he knows it all. Here you see his supernatural knowledge. He knew what was in their hearts. He read people's minds and hearts. That they were blaspheming. Now, blaspheming is a very serious uh, sin in the Bible. Like Jim showed us in Leviticus 24 today, that blasphemy, and that you can only blaspheme God. That's, that's a sin that pertains to deity. Saying something just outrageous about God that puts God in a bad light, that is intended to harm his reputation, to slander him of that nature. So blasphemy is a very serious thing. It's the denigration of God, the defaming of God. 
And this is what they're accusing Jesus of. You want to know something? They're absolutely right in this accusation if Jesus is only a man. If he's only a man, then he was blaspheming to say this. Because Jesus was acting like God by saying, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. He was acting like God. He was taking a prerogative that belongs only to God, and he was claiming it for himself. And if this was not true, this was blasphemy. They're correct about it. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why do they say that? Well, because all sin is against God. I referred to David, King David's sin last week of murder and adultery. Both of those sins were against his neighbor. They were against Bathsheba and against Uriah, her husband. Those were sins against David's neighbor. But David says in Psalm 51, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So David saw that he had sinned against God ultimately, even though his sins were against his neighbor. All sin is against God. All of it. Though the Lord Jesus, he perceived in his spirit what these men were thinking. So he, he answers them brilliantly. It's so brilliant what he says. Notice how he puts it. You've got to watch the wording here because it's real important, the word. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? I want to underline that verb. To say. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, this is what's coming out here. It's very easy for somebody to say to somebody else, hey, your sins are forgiven. Well, we don't know whether that statement is true or false, because you can't prove it. How do you demonstrate the proof of that? That's simply a statement. You can't say... Well, that's true or that's false, because you can't see it. So that's a very easy thing for anybody to say. On the other hand, if I say to somebody that's got paralysis, take up your bed and walk, there's no way I can fool anybody with that statement, because it's going to be very obvious that I either had the power to heal them, bring healing, or my word was completely powerless and empty because the healing did not take place. So to make that statement really puts, I'm really sticking my neck out and I'm out on a limb as to whether or not I'm a truthful person. See, this is what he's bringing out. Very easy to say, hey, your sins are forgiven. I forgive you. The Lord Jesus, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. That's the point. Because I can fool you with that. But I can't fool you with a healing. So, 
Jesus goes on to say, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now I'm going to demonstrate for you, visibly, my authority to forgive his sin by bringing about a healing that everybody's going to see, nobody can dispute it, beyond any shadow of a doubt. And he says, and it comes as a command, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose, he got up off of his mat, he rolled that thing up, and he walked out of the house in front of everybody. He didn't stay around. He didn't want to chit-chat. He's gone. What an amazing thing. The Lord Jesus just demonstrated his divine authority to forgive sins in a way nobody forgot. Remember whose word is being, whose testimony is behind Mark's gospel? Who is it again? Who did Mark get his information from? He got it from the apostle Peter. So Peter witnessed this whole thing unfold, and it was so memorable, Peter will never forget it. He told this story, and Mark remembered it as well and included it in his Memoirs of Jesus Christ. Which is easier to say? Not to do. He didn't put it like that. He says, which is easier to say? In some ways, it's harder to forgive sins. Think about that for a minute. What was required to bring about the forgiveness of sins? There are some people who have said, you know, God is sovereign. He could have just arbitrarily said, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. No, it couldn't happen like that. God had to go to great trouble and pain in order to put himself in a position where man could be forgiven of his guilt. It required the incarnation of his son and then his death on the cross. This is why in the Bible, God's redemptive work is expressed in terms of God bearing his arm in power. But when he created the universe, the Bible says it was the work of his fingers. In other words, the work of creation and creating this mighty universe, this was a very little of exercise of divine power. But in order to redeem man, bring about salvation, it required God bearing his arm. So it was no easy thing for God to forgive sins. He had to satisfy his own justice without sending man into eternal doom. How is he going to do that? He's going to punish somebody else in his place. That's an amazing thing that God thought of. That's how he does it. Which is it easier to say? So the man got up and walked out. People are 
utterly amazed by it. They glorified God. But again, like I said earlier, doesn't say anybody believed. Doesn't say anybody was converted. Doesn't say anyone uh, repented. The crowds, sometimes they appear very passive. Sometimes they're fickle. They turn on a on Jesus in a moment. John chapter 6, they did that. Okay, let me wind this up with a couple considerations. This healing of the of this man with paralysis, this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament promise that the Messiah would. This is a beautiful passage, Isaiah 35. It says that the, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap for joy, the dumb will their tongue will be loosed. And it's, it's naming all the different kinds of healings that would occur in Israel when he came. Remember when uh, John the Baptist was in prison? And John started to have his doubts himself. And he sent his disciples to Jesus and saying, are, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? And Jesus sent John's disciples back to him. He says, you go tell John that the, the blind have their eyes open and the lame walk. And Jesus kind of went through that same Isaiah 35 passage with them as a reminder of the miracles that he performed. These were Jesus' credentials. This is why he did these things. He wasn't doing it simply to relieve human suffering, but they were intended to demonstrate who he was and to convince people that the Messiah was among them now in fulfillment of the word of God. Well, Jesus is the Savior of the whole person, like I said. And even the order of salvation is hinted at here. Do you know that there's an order of salvation? When you read theology books, they talk about the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. That there's, you know, when we think of salvation, we think, okay, I'm saved from sin and I'm going to heaven. Well, there's more to it. There's actually... There's several stages to salvation. There's several steps. And it begins with forgiveness and um, God's calling and the regeneration of souls, embracing Jesus by faith and being justified and so on. So the sin problem is the first thing that's taken care of. And then the healing of the body. So with the two parts that we see in the healing of this man with paralysis, this, this follows the order of salvation. Because the healing of our body, when does it take place? At the resurrection. This is when our body is renewed completely. We're given a body that's immortal, that will never die. This is coming in the future. This is why we look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ, because... When he comes, his church is going to be transformed. Paul says, I show you a mystery. We shall not all die. There shall be some that are awake and alive when Jesus comes. But Paul says, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. We'll be transformed from mortality to immortality 
That's the last stage of our salvation. So there's a great order to salvation, beginning with the need of forgiveness and culminating with the need of our body being transformed and made impervious to disease and death. And then a a final thought here. You know, any affliction or suffering... Many people are afflicted with things for many years. Some people have an affliction that lasts their entire lifetime. Right now we have a daughter who is afflicted with something. And I have not seen her in almost two years. She does not want to see us. Can't see her. She's sick, really sick. You know, if, if our afflictions bring us to Jesus Christ, then that affliction has actually turned to an, a blessing. Now, I'm not saying that about Sarah because she knows the Lord. She is saved. So I'm not saying that about her, that it brings her to Christ. It, no doubt it's making her close to the Lord. But there's so many uncertainties about what's going on right now with her. But I'm saying to you, if you know anybody that has an affliction, who is in a state of suffering, and it could even be mental, doesn't have to always be physical. People who suffer with depression, it is horrible beyond anything that, if you've never been sunk into that kind of darkness and despair, it's hard to appreciate what some people feel like. They can't get out of bed. They cannot function. This is major depression. It can end up in great tragedy if there is an intervention for them. But if that affliction ends up bringing them to Jesus, that the Lord uses it to save them, this is... is, 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 the, the best thing that can happen. Then we can say, it's good for me that I was afflicted. This is what David says in Psalm 119. It's good that I was afflicted. Imagine being able to say that. Our other daughter, who you've heard about periodically, who died of cancer in 2002, said to me on the way to LAX, we were flying back to St. Jude. I remember it very clearly. And she said to me in the car, Dad, without prompting, Dad, I'd hate to think what kind of a person I would have become if I had not gotten cancer. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for that revelation. So a misery becomes a mercy if it leads us to Jesus. If it leads us to the Lord, then that misery is turned into a great mercy, and we can thank God for it. In that case, then, something that would normally make something make a person bitter ends up making them better. This is, this is the design. When we follow God's plan in, in suffering, the outcome, this is why Paul says, it works for your good. It'll turn out in a good way in the end for you. Yeah, David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. This is Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71, if you want those texts about it was, it's good that I was afflicted. 
Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.